Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. All right, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. I will meet you there in Luke chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1027 in that Bible. And I'm going to show you a clip here, uh, show it every year, feel like I have to show it every year. And it's from uh, the classic Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, which many of us have probably seen many times. And as the show comes to the end, uh, Charlie Brown is overwhelmed by the commercialism and the crassness of what's happening to the Christmas holidays. Uh, he's had enough as he's trying to wrestle with what r Christmas is really all about. Take a look. Still good, right? Like decades later, still beautiful, still tugs on the heartstrings, uh, still amazing. That was network television, which you think probably wouldn't happen today. But even back then, it was controversial. And when Charles Schultz, who put together, uh, he was the one who drew Peanuts and was in charge of Charlie Brown, when they approached him about the special, he had said to NBC, uh, there has to be this passage from Luke in there. There has to be. And even then, they said, well, we don't want to offend anybody, and it's public airways, we don't want to do that. And he said, okay, well, then we're not doing the special. And they said, well, there's probably enough money to be made that we can probably put this together. And so that was put in there at his specific request, and, uh, and still holds up all these years later, the special as a whole. And, and obviously the struggles that they had you know, 50 years ago as they were uh, worrying about the commercialism of Christmas and the busyness of the holiday, and are we missing the meaning? I mean, we talk about that stuff today. That's nothing new. That's something that even then they were struggling with. And there's something about the passage. There's a nostalgia factor to it, right? Because most of us probably watch Watch that growing up, and we've seen that a million times, and there's something about Christmas time, and the carols that we sing all the time, and the songs that we sing, and the movies that we watch, and the traditions that we have, there's a very real nostalgia factor that kind of pulls us into this warm, fuzzy feeling uh, about everything that Christmas is. And it's been fun as a parent now, because we get to introduce our kids to some of these things. And, uh, and even as we do that, it doesn't always work out the way I think it's going to as a parent, because I'm excited to share things, and they don't care about all the things that I cared about as a kid. So we were watching, there was a special on TV when I was a kid called The Muppet Family Christmas, and not tons of people know about it, this was back in the 80s, uh, but it was an hour-long special, not a Muppet Christmas Carol, which is also a classic, a Muppet Family Christmas. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh, a couple of people nodding. And so this was a special in 1987 where the Muppets all went to a farm and they're spending Christmas together. And then the Sesame Street gang shows up, and then Fraggles, remember Fraggles? Fraggles were there. And so it's kind of all the Muppet universe coming together, and they hang out in this farmhouse, and they sing carols. And so in 1987, I was seven years old. My parents taped it on VHS at the time, and we watched it every year. And so it became a big part of my childhood. And so the VHS is long since gone, and if you want to buy a DVD of it, it's like $800 online. But it is on YouTube for free. And so I've been so excited, because that was just, again, it just tugs on my heart. I'm so excited to share this with my kids. And so this year, we're going to watch it. We've watched it once before. Uh, they were kind of indifferent. This year, they're going to get it this year. They're going to understand why it was so important. And so on Friday night, I say, all right, we're going to watch a Muppet Family Christmas. And Kaylee goes, yay, she remembers. And Matthew goes, ugh. And I say, oh, buddy, this was such a big fun thing for me when I was a kid. It was such a fun show. Why don't you like it? And Matt's very sincere, and, and he doesn't like to disappoint anybody, but he's very honest. And so I said, Matt, why don't you like it? And he looked at me at six years old and said, sometimes you don't need a reason. <laughs> I 
And I said, that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Don't ever make anyone feel like you owe them an explanation. That's absolutely right. So we watched it anyway, and Kaylee and I had fun, and Matt grumbled his way through it. Um, but as we continue through our, our Christmas time at Meadowbrook Church, we've been in a little mini-series called Christ in the Carols, and uh, this will be the last day today that we do this, because next Sunday is Baptism Sunday, so we're going to focus on that. But we've been taking time uh, through this series, we did it as well a couple of years ago, of taking a Christmas carol and kind of letting it be the teaching vehicle for us. And by walking through the lyrics of the carol, we're getting to know these worship songs better, and we're seeing all the scripture that is behind them, we're understanding the theology behind them uh, and so we've been doing a carol each week and unpacking it in that way and I just want to say um, worship teams don't usually like doing carols because they're not easy to do these songs were written often hundreds of years ago they were written for organs uh, and not modern worship bands it takes a lot of work to make them sort of modern and relevant while still holding on to the the heart and the spirit of the carol I think our worship team has done a beyond phenomenal job at putting this together They've done so well, and our, our drummers in particular, Rob and Brent, like these are not easy songs to drum for, and they've just done fantastic, and the leaders, there's everyone, they've pooled their creativity together, and uh, I've just been so impressed by what they've done. This is not easy to do. But we're going to wrap up our last carol today, uh, and so we're going to do What Child Is This, which we sang this morning. Let's take a look at our text this morning, and then we will get to the carol as well. So Luke chapter 2, we've already read Luke chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago. The first part of Luke chapter 2 deals with the shepherd and the angels. The angels show up. They say a child has been born in Bethlehem, and then the choir shows up and sings glory to God in the highest. We sang that this morning. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. And that story continues. We're in Luke chapter 2, verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So the carol today that we're going to walk through is What Child Is This? And then we're going to cover a whole lot of scripture along the way. What Child Is This? Written in 1865 by William Dix. And uh, as many of these songs, as we've been saying, they often started as poems. And then somewhere along the way, someone decided to set them to music. The tune of What Child Is This? is Greensleeves, which is a very well-known, old, ancient uh, English song from the 1500s, traditionally uh, written by King Henry VIII. We don't know if that's true or not, uh, but that's been the tradition. It's a song about a girl. It's kind of a mournful, like, lost love kind of song. And somewhere along the way, someone realized, hey, the lyrics to What Child Is This fit perfectly with green sleeves, and the tone is nice, and it works together. And so they've been merged together ever since. And it really uh, comes from, at the beginnings, the view of these shepherds who are walking into the stable. Uh, they've just been told this amazing thing about this baby who has been born. Uh, they are coming to see what child is this? What child is this uh, who has been born that, that we have just heard all of these things about? They are coming in to investigate and to answer that question. So we will walk through these lyrics today. So what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? 
whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. And I just, I love the poetry of the old hymns. I just love how they write their lyrics and the richness of what they put there. Uh, so pointing to the angels showing up, obviously, pointing to the choirs that have sung uh, anthems of praise to God while the shepherds were watching their flocks at night. Uh, but that opening question, what child is this? That really is the question when it comes to Jesus. Who is this? And that's a question that gets asked about Jesus all the way through the Gospels. People were constantly saying, who is this? Who is this person? Far beyond when he's just a baby. And as he grows up, he would do a miracle, and they would say, who is this? Or they, he would teach something that seemed controversial at the time, and they would say, who is this? Who teaches this? He would do something incredible. They were amazed. The disciples, as he calms the storm, say, who is this? What manner of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. People are constantly asking, who is this Jesus? And that is the question for everybody on earth to wrestle through. Who is this? And one day Jesus gets his disciples together and says, who do you say that I am? Who am I? And their first answer, they're maybe trying to dodge the question a little bit. They go, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, and some people say you're Elijah. Uh, they're kind of, here's the rumors about who you are. But Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And that's the question that Jesus asks to every single one of us. What about you? Forget what you've heard. Forget what you've been told. Who do you say that I am? Who do you understand me to be? And that's the question, honestly, that determines eternity for us, how we answer that question. It's the most important question we will ever be asked in our lives. I asked Sarah once, will you marry me? That's a pretty important question. Not as important as Jesus' question. What about you? You personally. Not, not your parents' faith, not people around you. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer was, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes. And on this foundation I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That confession of faith, that, that confidence, that trust that says Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one who has come. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the Son of the living God. We have baptisms happening next Sunday. One of the questions they get asked while they're in the tank is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Do you believe that about Jesus? Because we don't want to baptize anybody who can't affirm that because that's a big part of our, our belief, our trust, our statement of faith. So what child is this? The question starts in this song. Who is this baby who has been born? Most babies are not born with angelic explosions of worship in the sky uh, and, and, and encounters that have led up to it and prophetic words and all sorts of different things. What child is this? And then it's not a rhetorical question. The song is going to answer it for us as we move, move on through the song, through the lyrics. This is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing, the one of whom the angels are singing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. That refrain repeats over and over again. This, this is Christ the King. Uh, when the wise men come to Herod, and we looked at that passage last week, and they say, hey, we saw this star. We have come to, to find the one who has been born King of the Jews. It causes all sorts of problems. Right? Because Herod is the king of the Jews. Herod is on the throne. If Jesus is being called king, that means Herod is not king, or his, his kingship is threatened anyway. And so Herod then begins to respond to try and protect his throne. 
But when Jesus is coming as king, he's coming in a whole other way. And from the very beginning, he is acknowledged as that. This is king. Not just teacher, not just prophet, not just promised one. This is king. And if Jesus comes and is called king, that calls all of us again to wrestle with that question. Who is this Jesus? Do I believe that or not? Because if Jesus is king, then it calls us to a decision. Because when a king's in the room, you either kneel or you don't. And so it calls all of us to figure out, okay, well, who, what do I believe about this Jesus? Because if Jesus is king, then I need to kneel. Herod's struggle was, well, if Jesus is king, I can't be king. And that's not our personal struggle because we're not literally kings, but it is part of the struggle. We spent some time this fall talking about this. The nature of our, our existence as humans who have fallen is that we all want to be king of our own lives. We want to be the boss. We want to be the Lord. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be told no. We don't want to be told there are boundaries. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We've each turned to our own ways. We want to do our own thing. That's been our problem since the beginning. And if Jesus is king, then that means I'm not. If Jesus is king, then that calls my life into a readjustment and a realignment. It calls my life to be shifted in a completely different way, where I say, okay, Jesus, if you are king, then you are boss. And if you're the boss, then I'm not the boss. If you're the boss, then I'm giving up some things. If you're the boss, then I'm going to maybe go away. That I, I wouldn't be my favorite way, but it's your way. And it might be a harder way, but it's the right way. It's the good way. If you're the king, then I want to follow in the ways of the king. If Jesus comes as king, it calls us to decision. It calls us to action. Will we kneel or not? And even though all of us, not all of us maybe, but most of us in this room have probably already said yes to that. Yes, he is king. Yes, I am going to kneel. Yes, I will follow. Yes, I will obey. Uh, there are still for all of us areas of our lives that are not fully kneeling yet. There are areas of our lives that are not fully submitted. There are areas of our lives where we are doing our own thing and going our own way. And so the challenge comes, and it's not easy. Is Jesus king? Yes or no? If he is, is he king of everything in your life? Are you submitting everything to him? Are you following after him everywhere? And if not, what areas are those? And, and what does it take now to begin to submit that to Jesus? And even as we do that, I mean, that, that bucks against our humanness. It bucks against our flesh, right, that wants our freedom, that wants to do our own thing. Uh, so there is a challenge in that. There is a challenge in that submission. But the trade-off as well is that if Jesus is king, I'm not. That's not a bad thing. That's actually a great thing because he's bigger and stronger and wiser and more powerful than me. He knows way more. And it's an incredibly uh, peaceful, amazing thing to know you're being watched over by a king, to th that there is somebody in charge, that there is somebody who calls the shots. Whatever decision I am coming to, I actually don't have to have the answer because the king has the answer. I have to figure out what the king wants. That's my job. But I don't have to have it all worked out. And I don't have to know anything beyond that. And Jesus made really clear to us, you're not even supposed to worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow is out of your hands. You're to be faithful today. You're to trust the king. And so although the submission part challenges our flesh, there is an incredible blessing, an incredible peace, an incredible freedom that says, oh, I get to submit my life to a king. I get to trust that someone's watching over me. I get to lean on his wisdom and his power. I am privileged to do that. 
So this, this is Christ the King. Haste, haste to bring him Laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Laud's just an old-timey word. It means praise. And I love the phrasing of that line, haste, hurry, right? He's worthy of praise, so hurry up and give it to him. Don't hold back. Don't be passive. Step up into that. Uh, run into worship. Run into praise. Give him the praise that he deserves. And in a lot of these songs, that is one of the main themes that we're pulling out of it, is that all of this calls us to respond in worship. All of, us, all of it calls us to respond in praise. And you'd expect that. They're praise songs, right? These carols are worship songs. But it shows up over and over again that our response to all of this is to lift our voices in praise. Our response is to give him the praise that he is worthy of, that he deserves. And in worship, when we come into worship, part of that is our submission to his kingship. Like, God knows very well that he's holy. He knows very well that he's powerful. He knows very well that he's greater. Like, he doesn't need me to tell him that. He knows that stuff already. But part of what makes worship important is I need to say that. I need to posture myself. I need to shift my attitude. I need to remind myself. And when we worship together, this is where corporate worship is so important. We remind one another of all of those things. And if I come into worship today and my faith's low and I'm feeling beat up, there is something powerful about hearing two to three hundred voices all declaring the holiness and greatness and goodness of God. Right? We build each other up as we worship together. God knows who he is, but I need to know who he is. And in worship, that is part of my submission, where I lower myself and I lift him up. I remind myself of where I am not holy and where he is fully holy, of where I am not great and he is incredibly great, of where I am weak and he is strong. Worship shifts my attitude and my perspective. I submit myself to him as king as I do that. Moving in to the second verse. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and lamb are feeding. Talking about where is Jesus born? Of all the places he could be born. And mean estate, again, just old-timey language that really just means lowly place. Why lies he in such a lowly place where the animals are feeding? That is not where kings are typically born. And it isn't just something that would surround his birth, that Jesus would actually live a life of lowliness. He'd live a life of poverty. Matthew 8, 20, uh, someone's trying to follow after Jesus. He says, you know, the foxes have dens and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That the poverty that he was born into was something that Jesus walked in throughout his whole life. It was something that, uh, that he lived out, that he did not seek earthly riches. He did not walk in a lot of earthly comfort. Uh, he lived this life of just kind of traveling and leaning on the generosity of others and, and trusting in God, and, and it worked out for him in terms of having his needs met as he lived this life. So from the beginning, why lies he in such mean a state? Why does he come in such a, a lowly place? Why does he come in such a humble beginning? Why does he come to this place? This is where the animals eat. That's not where kings are born, period, let alone gods who have come down to earth. It doesn't make any sense. It's upside down to what would make sense to us. And yet Jesus comes to model this life of humility, this life of less, this life of lowliness, this life of putting others first, this life of, of simplicity, this life of sacrifice. And he comes in this way uh, just so simply and so beautifully because typically in the Bible, up until this point, even in the Christmas story that we've seen so far, when the shepherds are out in the field and the angels show up, uh, I love the King James Version, it says they were sore afraid. 
The modern version says they are terrified. Right? Heaven explodes with a whole bunch of angels all at once while you're at your day job, minding your business. Like, that's a weird day. And we see it in Scripture over and over and over again. Someone encounters an angel, and their reaction is fear. Someone encounters the Lord, and their reaction is terror. And this phrase shows up over and over again. Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. It's okay. You're not going to die. It's okay. Like, there, there is just apparently something about the glory and the holiness of heaven touching earth that is so overwhelming that when these angelic visitors show up throughout Scripture, almost always the first thing out of their mouths is, don't be afraid. And they wouldn't be saying that if there wasn't fear involved in those moments. Like, there is something about encountering the divine as sinful man that must be scary when you see God's holiness, his majesty, when you see heaven's glory in that way. There's something about it, or else they wouldn't always be saying, calm down, when they show up. And yet, when Jesus comes to walk among us, he comes in the most non-terrifying way possible. He comes in the, the most accessible way possible. He doesn't come in a way that everybody is, is freaked out every time they encounter him. He comes in a way that people could talk to him and they could eat with him and sinners could be, you know, able to interact with him. Uh, he comes in this incredibly just approachable, humble, amazing way, this, this mean estate, this lowly existence. He, he lowers himself so incredibly we looked at this in the last series from Philippians 2, that although being God, he, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant. And part of that being, okay, everybody else, that's what we do now. We follow that example. We don't need to think of ourselves as great, because when Jesus came, he didn't try to make himself great. He actually made himself nothing. He made himself a servant. We follow after his example. Good Christians, fear. For sinners here, the silent word is pleading. And that word fear uh, can throw us off a little bit. And the Bible talks an awful lot about the fear of the Lord. And different theologians explain it in different ways. And usually uh, one of the things we kind of default to is that it's not like walk around terrified. Like it's not that type of fear. But there is a holy fear uh, that is sort of reverence and, and awe and amazement, all wrapped up in some fear, not of being scared of God necessarily, but fearing who he is, what he can do, fearing the consequences of our actions, fearing that he holds our life and our death in his hands, fearing that he holds our eternity in his hands. Like there is a fear that is healthy. You've maybe had the experience, like I hope you don't drive around terrified of police officers, but if you're driving a little fast and you see one, huh! There's some fear of the consequences, right? There is some fear of what's going to happen next. And so you don't walk around, like, terrified of police all the time, hopefully, but, uh, but there is a healthy fear. And part of that healthy fear is it spurs us on, hopefully, to drive well and to do what is right and to not break the law and to do what is good. And so there is a fear of the Lord, not that we walk around terrified of him, because one of the ways he reveals himself to us in Scripture is as father and as friend, that there's an intimacy with the Lord that we don't want to lose. And yet there should be a fear in the sense of he does hold life and death in his hands. He holds heaven and hell in his hands. Like a good father, Scripture says, he will discipline us when we get out of line. I didn't walk around scared of my dad, but I feared his discipline. I feared what could happen if I got out of line. And wrapped up in all of that is that, that awe, that majesty, that 
that trembling in a, a way where you're just overwhelmed by the holiness and the glory and the, the purity of God. And so good Christians fear is good Christians like revere what is happening in this stable because everything in this stable is pointing to a cross, which we're going to come back to. But like revere with, with trembling in a good and healthy way what God is doing in this moment, what God is working out for your sake. Good Christians fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. We're going to come back to the word in a second. But John begins his gospel. John doesn't tell any part of the Christmas nativity, any part of that narrative. But John kind of goes symbolic when he's talking about the Christmas story. So in John 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so the word, capital W there, is Jesus. You could say in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we're going to come back and unpack that in a second. But uh, in these Christmas carols, when we talk about the word, capital W, we are always talking about Jesus. I'll explain that a little more in a second. But Jesus is pleading. Jesus is pleading for us. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Where is the condemnation from our sin? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's not the only place in Scripture that it talks about that, that Jesus comes to plead for us. He comes to mediate between us and God, that where we had rebelled and we were cut off from God and God is holy and we are separated apart, someone needed to come to bridge that gap. And God doesn't choose to do it entirely on his own because man is the one who broke what was broken. God decides, I'm going to use a man to fix what man broke. I'm going to redeem it with a man. And yet can't just use an ordinary man because all men are sinful. And so God comes as man and becomes the perfect broker between God and man because he's both. And he comes to mediate and fix everything that was broken. And he intercedes for us. He prays for us. He stands in the gap for us. And where we were worthy of the justice of God, Jesus comes and pleads against that by offering his own life up. The author of Hebrews says he saves us completely because he always lives to intercede for us. He lives forever to stand in the gap for us. Now, what is he doing as a baby in that sense? As a baby, is he praying for us literally? Probably not. But his arrival on earth means that this is starting to happen. His arrival on earth means that the, the mediator between God and sinners has come. The intercessor has arrived. The word is pleading on our behalf. He is interceding for us. And even now in heaven, he always lives to intercede for us. Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is on our side and is, is pleading for us. And so the, the baby coming is the beginning of that. The word is pleading for sinners. That's what's starting at Christmas time as Jesus arrives. Nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. And this is how that pleading, that intercession is ultimately going to be fulfilled, that Jesus will pay the price that we deserve. Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
It's all pointing towards the cross. It's all pointing that way. And it has been said that the shadow of the cross looms over the manger. What makes the manger powerful is that it is pointing towards the cross. What makes the manger meaningful is that it is all heading in that way. And if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, then the manger is not that meaningful. If Jesus doesn't rise again, then it's just another baby being born. What makes Christmas powerful is that it is all heading in that direction, that the, the intercessor, the mediator has arrived who's going to fix the gap, who's going to fix all that was broken between God and man. And he's able to do that perfectly because he is God and man together as Jesus arrives. And so that's where the, the pleading and the, the cross all come together. And yet again, our response has to be praise. It has to be. Because you couldn't fix the gap on your own. You couldn't get to heaven on your own. You couldn't deliver yourself from your own sins. You couldn't do it. And so as the word comes and becomes flesh and dies for us, Praise is all we can do, and, and a devotion and a dedication to say, I'm going to follow after you. I'm going to trust you. It's easy to submit to a king who has done what he has done for us. Because earthly kings consolidate power and consolidate money, and, and, and good ones will, of course, care about their subjects, but even the best human ones uh, are not perfect. But this is a king who, against all odds for kings, has actually lowered himself. Against all expectations of a king, has actually died for his subjects. And that's a king that's worth submitting to. That's a king that you can trust. That's a king that is worth following. So we respond with worship. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. So the word, again, that's Jesus um, moving on through John's gospel in John chapter 114 says the word became flesh Jesus became flesh God became flesh and made his dwelling among us We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth And that to me is one of the best lines in all of scripture that the word became flesh God became flesh and the reason, there's lots of reasons why uh, theologians will discuss that Jesus is called the Word. Why is that one of the titles that is given to him? There are many reasons, I think, and they're all good, and they might all be true. But one of the, the clearest ones, and one of the ones that makes the most sense to me, is that uh, God has revealed himself to humanity, right? We can't know God on our own. God has to reveal himself to us. And anything that God does show us, he chooses to show us. We can't understand God on our own. He has to reveal himself to us. He always takes the initiative. He always makes it happen. And we usually use the phrase, the word, to talk about the scripture, right? That's most commonly where we use that phrase. Scripture is the word of God. And it is the word of God because that is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. He has chosen to reveal himself through the written word, breathed by the Holy Spirit. And so through the scripture, we know God. We get to know him. We get to know what he requires. We get to know his character. We get to know everything that he wants from us, and we get to know everything that he is. Everything we need to know about God, we can find in scripture. And scripture, of course, it's our, it's our canon, it's our measuring stick, it's our plumb line. It is everything we check against, like everything that God is, has to be able to be backed up by scripture. It is the final word, the final authority on all matters of faith. And so the word comes in written form to show us who God is. In Jesus, the revelation of who God is comes in living form to show us who God is. 
So the written word comes to show us who God is. In Jesus, the word of God gets lived out in a human life. It gets lived out in human form. The revelation of who God is comes to us in writing, and the revelation of who God is comes to us in Jesus. Jesus is the perfect revelation of everything that God is. There is nothing that God is that Jesus is not. There is nothing that Jesus is that God is not. To see Jesus is to see God. And is to see God, again, in a way that is very easy to access. It's a way to understand. And when we look at the scripture and we sometimes say, well, how do you live that out? Or this is complicated. We say, well, then we look to Jesus. Because Jesus lives out the revelation of God perfectly. He lives out the expectations of God perfectly. Jesus lives out this written book perfectly for us. And so we look to Jesus and say, that is how I am supposed to live, and that is how I know who God is. And so it's not one or the other, because we get to know Jesus as well through the Scripture, but it is, it is both and. The Word of God comes to us written, the Word of God comes to us in human form. And so the, the Word becomes flesh, the revelation of who God is becomes flesh, and makes, its dwell, makes His dwelling among us. Uh, and then John says, like, we've seen His glory, we've seen the glory of God. In Jesus, We've seen it face to face, coming from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. We looked at this passage last week with the wise men. Come peasant, king, to own him. And gold, frankincense, and myrrh are the gifts that the wise men bring. You can find that in Matthew chapter 2. And there's prophetic significance to these gifts, because gold was the tribute that you paid to kings. And so they are honoring his kingship as they do that. Incense was used in worship. Incense you would light. Some churches do this even now, and it kind of wafts up to the ceiling, and it's a picture of our prayers and our worship that rises up to God as a pleasing aroma. And so the, the Jewish people in the temple had incense burning all the time. And then uh, myrrh was something that was used in burial, because this is a, a time uh, where embalming is primitive, and, and they're not sealing people in caskets like they do today. Uh, they're wrapping them in cloth and putting them in tombs. And, and in a time where, uh, just to be kind of gross, where decay would happen very quickly, uh, they used very, very powerfully scented uh, aromas to try and cover that up. And so bodies would be anointed with myrrh. Bodies would be uh, covered up. Now, that's not a normal baby gift to point to death like that, right? Like when we go to a baby shower, we don't give them their coffin for 80 years from now. And so there is prophetic significance to all of these gifts. With their gold, they are acknowledging his kingship. With the incense, they are acknowledging his lordship, his godness, his deity. They are bringing him that as an act of worship. And with the myrrh, they are pointing to a particular death. They are pointing to a death that's going to be significant. With these gifts, they are pointing to who Jesus is and what he is going to do. And so symbolically in the song, we bring Jesus our gifts. We bring him our acknowledgement of his kingship. We bring our worship before him because he is God. We bring the, the myrrh symbolically, remembering the death that he was going to die for all of us. And then the call is, come peasant. It's not peasant king, like one word. It's meant more like come peasant, come king, to own him. And, and it is the call that we see in the traditional nativity story that the shepherds are the peasants. They are the, just the working people. Uh, the magi traditionally have been called the three kings, and, and they might not actually have been kings, but they are the wise and the wealthy. They've got lots of money for gifts, obviously. Uh, they are smart and educated. They are higher class, probably. And so the call is, whether you are poor, whether you are rich, 
come and, and own him. And that doesn't mean like be in charge of him because he's the king and you don't own kings, but it means claim him as your own. Claim him as your king. Bow your knee to him. So come peasant, come king, come everybody from every space of life, from every social standing, from every situation, everybody come. Whether you are in a low place in life or a high place, everybody come and bow a knee. Everybody come and own him as your king. Everybody come and submit to him. The king of kings salvation brings. It's our great line. Let loving hearts enthrone him. The king of kings salvation brings. A few verses earlier than what we read today, uh, the angels show up to the shepherds. This is the King James in Luke 2.11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And for people who have been in their sin and stuck in their sin and stuck in their darkness and stuck waiting, that is good news. That is joyful tidings. That's so many of our songs we sing are like, hey, it's good news, guys. It's a joyful time, guys. This is exciting news, guys. You were stuck and chained and the Savior just showed up. The one you've been praying for, the one you've been waiting for, the Savior has arrived. The King of Kings salvation brings to this world. He comes to bring that salvation. So let loving hearts enthrone him. And there's a, a verse in the Psalms that says, uh, we enthrone him with our praises. And uh, it means literally to put him on his throne. And it's not literal, of course. Jesus is on the throne whether we sing or not. And whether I bow a knee or not, he is on the throne. He just is. He is enthroned no matter what. But with our praises in our hearts, we enthrone him as king. With our praises, we remind ourselves that he is king and we are not. With our praises, we make sure that we are lowering ourselves and raising him up. And as we do that, we are enthroning him in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Every time we sing, every time we obey, every time we follow, every time we love, as he's called us to love, uh, we enthrone him and, and we, we remind ourselves that he is king. We remind ourselves that we are not. And we put ourselves in the right place and in the right posture. So raise, raise a song on high. We're just about done. The virgin sings her lullaby. That's Mary, of course, and uh, it gets unpacked a little more in earlier in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 1, and Matthew deals with it as well. This idea that Mary was a virgin and, and that God was doing something incredibly miraculous. And when Gabriel, the angel, shows up to Mary and says, this is what's going to happen to you, her first reaction was, sounds great. How exactly is this going to happen? And in one of my favorite lines in the gospel story, Gabriel says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And I pray that often for us and for my family and for different people and just pray that the power of the Most High will overshadow you, that it's not going to be something you do, but God's power is going to do this. And again, theologians debate the why of the virgin birth and, and the, the explanation I've heard that kind of makes sense is that uh, you know, why did God do it this way? One reason is just to show that it's him, obviously, that there is a miracle happening and it, it couldn't have happened any other way. The other side of it is that all men, all, who, all men and women who are born are sinful. And Romans says that has been passed down to us from Adam and Eve. It's something that we, we are born into. And it is, it is part of who we are, this idea of original sin, that there's just something about us that has fallen. And so in order to kind of break that cycle, God breaks into this story. Uh, if, her, if Jesus' dad had been a man, he would have inherited that sin nature. 
but because that line to Adam is interrupted here and God just shows up miraculously and does it, uh, then that doesn't get inherited and Jesus lives a different way. Uh, there's lots of different, I'm, this is, don't take this to heart. This is me just kind of speculating in an area that theologians like to uh, play around with a little bit. But it's been said, someone, a theologian once kind of made a joke that Jesus had his mother's eyes and had his father's nature. That he inherited that from God the Father, the, the divinity that needed to be there for him to be everything that he was. And, uh, and sometimes people speculate, ah, it's kind of hard to believe the virgin birth. Like it is, it's a tough part of the story to believe. Uh, and where I'm okay with it is that it's, it's a real stumbling block because it's kind of hard to believe. Like, the whole point of the Gospels was we want to convince people that Jesus is Lord. Like, that's why these Gospels were written. The good news, the, the evangelion, the, the, the evangelistic message of Jesus Christ. We want to win people over that this is the truth. And even back then, the, you know, the virgin birth was not instantly accepted by people. It just, it's, it's a tough one to understand. And yet, if you're trying to win people over to your cause, it's a really stupid thing to stick in your story because it's hard to believe. Like, it's a dumb thing to put in there unless it's true. And Isaiah had prophesied, the virgin will be with child. It is being fulfilled. The word of the Lord is being fulfilled. And we have our faith that it is being fulfilled in accordance with what God said was going to happen. The why of it, again, it's maybe kind of fun to speculate and kick around. Like I said, don't take that part too seriously. But the heart of our faith is that Jesus was born of a virgin that's been in the creeds from the very beginning. Uh, Matthew unpacks it in his gospel very clearly. Uh, the virgin sings her lullaby. And I like that line because it's just like, you know what? Mary was a mom. Right? We don't revere Mary the way the Catholics do, but we can still honor her as a woman of God, and, and she must have been a pretty great mom because she raised a, a pretty great kid that was, you know, partly divine nature, sure, but, you know, God chose her. Of all the women in the world who've ever existed, God chose her to be the mother of his son. And so, so we can honor her as a woman of faith and dedication. Um, the virgin sings her lullaby, right? Like, she stayed up with Jesus at four in the morning when he wouldn't stop crying. Right? She changed the diaper. Like she, this is a very human story, even as the divinity of God is coming to earth. There is a, a, just a beautiful simplicity to all of it. So joy, joy, for Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary. And again, we have come back to this point over and over again. Uh, when the shepherds encounter the angels, the reaction is joy. When the shepherds come to the manger, the reaction is joy. When the wise men come to the manger, the reaction is joy. Joy, joy, joy over and over again, because this is not just a baby who's been born. There is something incredible. There is something powerful. There is something divine. There is something new going on as Jesus comes to earth. The reaction is joy. The reaction is praise. The reaction is worship. And so... Uh, we're going to sing the song again, What Child Is This? Now we understand it a little bit better. We know the scripture behind it, uh, so we can sing it from our hearts maybe in a bit of a different way. But as we consider and reflect on the kingship, this, this is Christ the King. There's two sides to it for us. One is the submission side. Are we bowing our knee to Jesus? Are we doing it in every area? And the answer is no. But where are we not? And what does it look like then? Like, don't blow off that question. What does it look like to submit every area to him? To say, I'm going to submit uh, not just the, the big stuff in my life. I'm going to submit every part. I'm going to submit my words. 
and my thoughts and my finances and my parenting and my, my role as a spouse, my role at work, I'm going to submit everything to his kingship because he is king over everything. Whether I submit or not is my struggle and my choice, but where do I need to submit again to him? And for some of you today, maybe that's something you've never done. Maybe today is the day where you say, Jesus has come, the Savior has come, and he has said, submit to me and follow me. Come and follow me. Come and walk with me. And maybe today's the day for you where you say, yes, I'm doing that. Today is the day that I do that. And, and for the rest of us who've done that before, then, okay, so where, where does that look in our lives? What are we looking for? Uh, where are the areas? You know what? I, I think if you think about it for not too long, you probably know the answer to that question. Where is not fully submitted yet? And then the other part of it is our worship, where symbolically we bring our gold, our, our incense and armor. We bring our gifts. We bring our songs. We bring our praise. We respond to him as king because when a king's in the room, you kneel, right? When a king's in the room, you, you acknowledge that. When a king's in the room, you, you give praise. And so we respond with our submission and we respond with our worship and we want to worship a little more before we leave today. So would you stand please with me? This is Christ the King. And here at Meadowbrook Church, that is the most important thing. And anything else we do here is always coming out of that, that we honor Jesus as King and as Lord here. And we are, all of us as sinners, as broken people, we are working our way to following Him and, and knowing Him better, obeying Him better. We are all in process of going down this journey. Uh, we're grateful that you're here with us on that journey with us. And, and as we all pursue Jesus together, uh, just a reminder as we get ready to close that we have prayer afterwards up here and uh, we have some people who are trained by us, released by us, ready to pray for anything that you need. It is professional, it is confidential, uh, and they're very excited to pray with you today. And so if you're not going to pray, uh, and we, we really do mean this, uh, please go away after the service. And if you're going to visit, we want you to visit and stay. Don't leave the building, but go away to the lobby or down to the cafe just so this can be a quiet place. We're having times where our prayer people are like shouting in people's ears because there's just people visiting in here. We want you to visit. We love the visiting. Please just do it out there so that prayer can be happening. We can make this a holy place for a little while for those who are seeking the Lord. Let us pray together and then we will dismiss. Father, thank you for your word and for everything that uh, you point us to, Lord, at this time of year as we behold the manger, as we behold the babe, as we behold the word made flesh, Lord, as we bow our knee before him, and as we remember that all of it points to the cross, Lord, it all points to the fulfillment of everything you did to save us, Lord, where we could not save ourselves, and where you were here and came down among us in order to save us because of your great love for us. Lord, as we leave and as we go about this week, I pray, Holy Spirit, you will not let us off the hook uh, of the words that you have taught through your scripture today, Lord, that we would examine ourselves. We would look at our lives. We would say, hey, where are we not bowing our knee? Is there any area of our life that is not submitted to Jesus' way? Where are we still in sin? Where are we being selfish? Where are we not acknowledging him? Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and convict us and show us and then lead us 
in the ways of Christ, in the ways of holiness, in the ways of purity. And as we do that, Spirit of God, rise up within us with worship, with praise, with the revelation of everything that Jesus is, that we could praise you sincerely and fully with full hearts. Come and rise up in us, Spirit of God, and direct all of our worship, all of our praise, all of the laud, all of the glory to King Jesus as we kneel before his throne. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. We will see you next Sunday. Come on up for prayer.